The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we've been exploring the Eightfold Path in this class, and uh, we're pretty much right in the middle. In fact, right directly in the middle, because we're on the fifth out of eight. Um, yeah, between four and five is the middle. So the, 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 the middle section of the Eightfold Path is the ethics section, the kind of the section that helps us to um, engage in our daily lives in a, in a more, um, in a way that reduces harm in our, in our communities, in our um, relationships. So I really love that a piece of the Eightfold Path contains this direct, very um, important area of relationship. Sometimes we think about, you know, the ethical section as being right and wrong, good and bad, and maybe we have a little bit of a uh, hmm, tightening around it. Um, certainly the the way in which I was raised around uh, ethics was felt more about what you should do and shouldn't do, and, uh, you know, maybe felt a little limiting or uh, somehow felt like tightening, you know, and, and also judgmental. It, it seemed to feel very judgmental that these things are, you know, if you even think about something, you're bad. And, that, you know, that teaching in, in my upbringing is like the... I remember famously Jimmy Carter saying something like, I have lusted in my heart and so I have sinned. And, you know, that kind of approach where even the thought of something uh, coming up, uh, even the thought coming up in the mind is sinful. I think that's kind of embedded in our, in our culture in some ways. And the, um, the way that the, the Buddhist teachings hold these ethics has a, has a slightly different flavor because while it's really important to understand when thoughts arise in our mind, when an intention moves us in that direction, the understanding is very much that that is going to happen and that the encouragement is to notice that, not judge yourself for that, but also recognize that that movement to wishing to harm, uh, wishing to harm others, uh, or the delusion that's like unaware of how our actions may uh, cause harm to others, that that actually is something that causes harm for ourselves as well. Uh, it, 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 as we start to see that movement of heart, we start to see the, the contractions that are associated with these, with these movements that would cause harm, the aversion and the greed that are embedded in there. The delusion is more, we're more unaware of that, but, but those, those movements of heart, when we actually become aware of them, we begin to, to see, ah, oh, that actually already feels tense, contracted, uh, off internally. And so the, the, the exploration around ethics, becoming aware of these thoughts or intentions towards, um, towards, um, causing harm, 
we begin to see that not only would it cause harm externally, but it's also not so good internally either. That it, it creates a, a climate of, of um, distress and stress internally. And so we begin to recognize that this shift for, um, that, that the encouragement towards ethics is a support for our communities and also it's a support for ourselves. And the other piece I feel around the ethics that seems so important to me is that recognition that of course these, these thoughts are going to arise. They've been conditioned in us. You know, the whole like mode of our um, culture and the ways that we've learned to find our happiness is often based in greed and aversion. And, um, and we're not so, so conscious of that. So the, um, the, 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 the mind that kind of moves in that direction, we understand that, we begin to understand the, the way in which our culture has shaped us in, in this direction. These, you know, I need to protect myself by, by being angry and um, fearful and that, you know, that kind of mo- mo- movement of mind. And the... Um, so we, rec- we begin to see that, of course, these things are going to arise in our mind. And can we know that, recognize that, and, and begin to understand that because they tend to lead us in the direction, not only of creating harm externally, but also internally, we begin to have the, the choice or the movement to refrain from acting on those impulses. And this is where the, really the ethics part is is refraining from acting on those impulses. We're not, um, the, 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 the teachings of the Buddha, the practices of mindfulness, understand that we'll see a bunch of mess inside our minds. And that that's not that we are bad, it is that we are conditioned. This is the way things have been conditioned. And so to begin to understand that conditioning not to judge it, not to feel like I'm a bad person around it, but also not to just say, well, this is the way I've been conditioned. It's kind of like slide down that slope. It's so easy to kind of follow the groove of what the direction that we've been conditioned. And so this is why the ethics section really helps us, why these ethical teachings help us. Because they help to point out specific actions of body, speech, and mind, um, particularly specific actions of body and speech that tend to be conditioned by things that are not so helpful, unskillful states of mind. And so it's kind of like when we start to see that we're getting ready to act in a certain way, and so the the kind of this is the area of the Eightfold Path that we're on today, wise action, when we start to see that we're ready, getting ready to act in a certain way, um, then we, uh, that kind of can be a little bit of a wake-up call for us. And so it's, it's relatively, still not necessarily, it's not easy, I would say. It's not easy to uh, refrain from acting when those impulses arise because it takes some degree of mindfulness to recognize that the impulse has arisen and that we're moving in that direction. And so while this is not such an easy thing to do, um, the uh, the ability, we have more of an ability, more capacity, I would say, to refrain from an action 
than we do to refrain from the intention arising in the first place. And so this is where the ethical section is kind of designed to help us. It highlights certain actions that, that um, say, yeah, if you're going to be doing this, you should check your mind, you know, see what's going on because probably there is something that's going on that is not helpful for yourself or others or both. And so to begin to look at that, the, the, the motivating, the deeper roots that motivate these kind of unskillful, uh, unhelpful actions are greed, aversion, and delusion. And so the, the, uh, the ethical section not only helps us to create more harmony in our relationships, but it also helps us to see things that um, keep us from an inner kind of harmony. So I really feel like this uh, ethical section, this middle section of the Eightfold Path, is about inner and outer harmony, as opposed to inner and outer harm. We shift from inner and outer harm to inner and outer harmony through the engagement with these actions or actually refraining from actions because that's the way in which these principles are framed as um, refraining from certain actions of body and speech. And so we've been, we spent quite a bit of time with, with uh, wise and mindful speech over the last few weeks um, Refraining the, the the basic aspects of wise speech are refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle chatter. Now, while idle chatter isn't necessarily directly harmful, it's one of those things that tends to put us in the terrain of of checking out, of delusion, of not really being here. If we're engaged in idleness in the mind, it, we're, we're less likely to be present and here, and so. The encouragement is also to to just take care with what we say, and that I feel like that leads into more the area of mindful speech. And so, uh, we talked about mindful speech as well in the last few weeks. And today, starting um, an exploration of wise action. Um, probably, there's three aspects of wise action: refraining from killing or harming. Uh, living beings, the, the Pali there, uh, Panatipata, um, Veratmani, those two words, um, Panatipata, Pana, the Pana part means to breathe. Um, and so Pana, Pana is um, breathing beings is the, what, what, where the, we're refraining from injuring breathing beings. And so um, this includes humans, animals, insects. Um, the commentaries explicitly say it doesn't include, I believe it's explicit, the Bhikkhu Bodhi has explicitly said does not include plants. Even though there's a form of respiration in plant life, uh, there's not understood to be the consciousness in plant life, the, the, the kind of uh, that that ability to know oneself. Um, so uh, pana means breathing being, and the atipata p- part means to strike. And so, and the waratmani means re- refrain. So refraining from striking 
breathing beings. That is the, uh, the, trans- the literal translation of this part of the Eightfold Path. And uh, typically it's translated as to refrain from killing living beings. The second, the second one is um, to refrain from taking that which is not given. I believe that's a fairly literal translation of the Pali. And the third is to refrain from um, unwholesome sexual activity uh, in the in the um, the Michachara. Um, let's see, Kamesu. So Kamesu means. Um, Sensual sexual activity, michachara means wrong or unwholesome. And so, so the, the, in the time of the Buddha, this was explicitly referring to adultery. That was about the, the kind of the context for this area. Um, and, uh, you know, the definition of adultery is very different culturally. Um, at the time of the Buddha, uh, People had multiple, uh, men had multiple wives and um, um, seeing a courtesan was not unusual and that was not considered adultery because you were not engaging in um, uh, sexual activity with someone that was protected by someone else. So the, the whole the whole thing around in the in the time of the Buddha this this third aspect of wise speech in the first place it's entirely directed towards men doing unwholesome sexual activity so it's very limited <laughs> and it's also culturally limited because it's specific to the, the kinds of um, kinds of activities. Uh, that would be considered adultery at the time. And so I think we need to look more broadly, more culturally, since at the time of the Buddha this was defined culturally, what does it mean to create harm through sexuality? And so that's something that we'll be exploring. Um, So these three, to refrain from um, killing living beings or striking living beings, I I feel that the the precept or the joining around this um, wise action, around this first part of wise action, is not only not to kill, but not to injure or maim. Or, you know, so, so I think it's, it's broader than killing, this, this first one. And then uh, to refrain from taking what's not given, to refrain from stealing, and to refrain from creating harm through our sexuality. And so probably today um, we'll just talk about the the first one and then see some questions around that or discussion around that there's always gray areas um in these uh in these precepts and or in these um areas of the ethical eightfold path so um i want to give some time for discussion so i won't try to go through all three of these today but just um just talk about um the the first one to refrain from killing um, but I will spend a little bit of time uh, again looking at the um, kind of the intentional aspect, which applies to all of these three aspects of wise action. Um, the, like the definition of um, 
Where's the book? The definition in the text around what this is, abstaining from taking life. This is what the Buddha says. Someone avoids the taking of life and abstains from it. Without stick or sword, conscientious, full of sympathy, one is desirous of the welfare of all sentient beings. So that's, that's what it says in the texts around this. Um, avoids taking up, taking of life and abstains from it without stick or sword or gun or nuclear weapons, <laughs> basically any form of, of weapon. Um, and I would say, you know, again, because this is uh, refraining from striking living beings, that could include your fists. I think any form of harming another being, physically harming another being. That's what this is talking about, the physical harm of other beings. Some of the other precepts, the other things that we've talked about, the speech, for instance, that's harming through speech. This is more harming through our body that, it, that this is pointing to. So um, the, the commentaries get a little more detailed, um, and they point to the... the um, really point to the intention that's behind the act of killing as being a primary place for how this ethical um, event or, or, or the, 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 uh, if, we, if we break this, um, this precept, this encouragement to refrain from, taking life. How does this come about? And an important piece in the commentaries points to um, the taking of life is the volition of killing expressed through the door of body or speech. So that's how the commentaries frame it. The volition of killing expressed through body or speech occasion resulting in the cutting off of life. And so this, this is worth unpacking a little bit. We've got the intention or the volition of, uh, to kill. We have the um, expression of that intention or volition through body or speech. And we have the result being a living being dying. So the, the um, important, uh, important piece here is to recognize the, the intention has to be there in order for this ethical um, breach to happen. And so I think this is important because um, it, it, acknowledges, it acknowledges that accidents happen. It acknowledges that um, you know, sometimes there may be, you know, if, we're, if, we are, if we're walking across the lawn and step on some insects, you know, we're not... First of all, we're not intending to, to kill in doing that action. So the, the volition is, is not there. And then second of all, another piece that the, the commentaries point to is that there has to be the perception of a living being in order to uh, breach this precept. And so the, the, um, not, you're not even knowing that perhaps these insects are there 
You step in an ant's nest, which you may so soon know insects are there if you step in an ant's nest. Um, but not knowing that, you know, the killing that happens there is not done intentionally. I wish to kill these ants. And so just thinking about that, you know, how, how different is it in the mind if you are, you know, if you, if you walk across the lawn and accidentally step on a spider, don't even perhaps know that that happened. What's the difference in the mind there versus when you see a spider on your wall and pick up something to try to kill it? Very different experience in the mind there. And so this is, this is um, you know, the, the, the experience in the mind in one case is unaware. And so perhaps there, you know, there's something to learn from unawareness if we find out later that you know, that, that a lot of beings have been killed by walking across the lawn, maybe the next time we would go on the sidewalk. You know, so there's, there may be something to learn there from that unawareness. There's some, perhaps some delusion there. Um, but that the mind of um, the kind of hatred and revulsion that leads to killing a spider actively with intention, very different and so that's the, that's the piece that that we um, that, that the teachings around mindfulness are really encouraging us to look at is what's that quality in the mind when there is that arising of revulsion or hatred to kill a being, and so you know this killing living beings, uh, not just about killing human beings, but also about looking into our relationship to non-human beings. So, so this is um, this first part about the the volition to to kill expressed through either body or speech, and so the, this is another piece that the commentaries really highlight is um, expressed through speech would be if somebody commands somebody else to kill. That is also considered very unwholesome, very uh, you know unethical. So the command to kill is um, we are encouraged to refrain from that. Um, and then the whole thing has to end with the harm or injury of a, a being, death or injury of a being. So the volition that piece is you know that's the piece of the kind of the movement towards the the action to do and another important piece here is that volition so the the breach of this uh, ethical or an ethical violation here has to result in the ending of the life or the harm having been created. And so to me, this also brings in the kind of the broader, um, maybe more what um, relaxed approach that the Buddhist um, the Buddhist approach to ethics around recognizing that these volitions do arise in the mind. And, and that, that, you know, so, so to 
um, it, it is not it is not an ethical violation for the volition to arise in the mind. It is a uh, something that's really helpful to notice, to recognize the harm that might come from following through on that volition, and also the kind of harm that is felt internally. But to me, this creates a lot more flexibility, in a way, around ethics in the in the Buddhist tradition, because we are not like trying to suppress these urges or uh, volitions. We're not trying to suppress them. We're trying to get to know them, trying to understand them, because the understanding of them and the recognition of the way in which they would harm not only others but ourselves, that creates the conditions for our heart and mind to begin to step away from those kinds of not only the actions, but our mind begins to step away from those kinds of intentions and volitions in the first place. Because the, the, when the mind begins to recognize that something arising internally is painful internally, is kind of internally harmful, the mind begins to, this is, to me, this is just the way our, our organism works, that, that, um, as uh, as our, our our organism wants to move in the direction of ease and peace and well-being, it wants to have rest. It wants to feel okay. And the reason why we're doing these things you know, following through on actions. The reason why these things come up in the first place is because our system has been conditioned to believe that somehow these actions are going to lead to our well-being, but our system and our organism believes that only because it's not really looking at the effect that those intentions have internally. Because it, it's because it's only thinking externally. Oh, if I do this, I'll be able to have what I want. I'll be able to organize my life in a certain way and I'll be okay. But we are unaware, kind of deluded. We have a, a filter in our minds, a, kind of a, a delusional filter that is unaware of how these motivations of greed and aversion and delusion actually affect us in the moment. And so as we start to see that internally, we start to see that effect that it has on us. Because our system wants to move in the direction of well-being, and it's seeing that this, this movement of greed, aversion, or delusion is... Basically, it's, it's created by our mind. It, the, the, the deeper wisdom begins to recognize that that is optional, and it's not the only way that well-being can be found. In fact, that is not the way that well-being can be found because right in the moment that those arise, well-being is not there. As soon as greed over us brings up in the mind, there's already a feeling of lack. As soon as aversion arises in the mind, there's a separation and a contraction. There's already non-well-being with those qualities arising in the mind. And so our system begins to understand that 
with the mindfulness, with being aware of these motivations, our system begins to understand that. And because the system wants to move in the direction of well-being, it starts to find another way. It starts to explore the possibility of not engaging in those, uh, in that direction. And the, the, over time, as, we, as the mind begins to kind of search for another direction, it begins to understand there are different things that can motivate us, different qualities of heart and mind that can lead to action. That's, that's another piece around greed, aversion, and delusion, that when we're caught in those views, the views that greed, aversion, and delusion hold, when we're caught in those views, we, we believe that... <clears throat> You know, that when we're caught by greed, greed thinks that the only way to happiness is to follow through on greed. It has no clue there's another way. It's like, just no clue. Likewise with aversion. Aversion thinks that the way to happiness is to separate me from something, to, to divide me from something. It has no clue there might be another, another way. And so hearing some of these teachings, there are other ways. Our mind begins to, to kind of search for other ways. And, you know, love, compassion, wisdom, patience, generosity, all of these qualities of heart are different motivations for action. And these qualities tend to not have us engaging in taking life, in taking what's not given, in creating harm through sexuality. Love, compassion, generosity, kindness tends to create action that unifies, that joins, that uh, creates harmony. So, refraining from killing living beings... So another piece of the um, the um, teaching around the the morality around taking life, creating harm. It's you know it may sound kind of simple and straightforward. You know, refrain from killing breathing beings. You know, don't do that. We may have this kind of sense of it being a very cut and dried ethical thing, but there in the in the teachings, there's a lot of understanding of different moral consequences. Let's say different weight of actions depending on many things, depending on um, the the kind of being that is. Um, killed for instance there's a different um, a different moral weight and so it's more ethically and, and what I'd say here about the moral weight too this is this is um, you know it sounds like somebody is up there judging us you know that the, the the moral weight of something is somebody's up there keeping score but the the moral weight here is understood to be a natural kind of cause and effect relationship it is the 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 consequences or, or what we could say kind of a rebound on our minds of having killed a living being are stronger if we kill a human being than if we kill an insect this is we understand this 
in general that that you know the consequences of of killing a human being has a stronger effect on us than than it than it does when we kill a spider or an ant it still doesn't feel good it's not to say that killing a spider or an ant does not have some kind of a rebound it does but there's a greater rebound a greater kind of a consequence you know just just reflecting on you know even if um, you had to kill somebody in self defense and this is another area for instance that that um, that there is uh, kind of a different moral weights that if the if the kill if there's somebody that is killed that has a very um, it's, let's see, they say that the quality of the person also affects this rebound effect. So, you know, if, if, you're, if, if somebody is killed, like Gandhi, you know, somebody killed Gandhi, the rebound effect of that is way more serious than killing the person who killed Gandhi. You know, to... to if you notice that that was happening and somebody, the, the only thing that they could have done is to, you know, shove them aside really fast and they fall and they hit their head on the ground and crack their head open. Maybe the intention wasn't to kill them, but they die. The intention was to kind of get them away. That has less consequence, kind of rebound consequence. So, you know, killing somebody in self-defense, you know, that... that um, you know, that, that does have an effect on your mind. So again, to try to do a little bit of a mental play, if you had to kill somebody in self-defense, probably there would be an effect of that. Both, you know, kind of, you know, in, in, your, in your thoughts in the next, you know, days, weeks, months, a remembering that that happened and the the feelings there that there there would be consequence to that there would be distress there would be concern perhaps and depending on on what the situation was so um so there would be a rebound there even in that situation and yet imagine potentially the you know the consequences both externally and internally around um, killing somebody in cold blood, you know, just uh, going up to them with the intention of killing them, killing them, um, you know, not in self-defense, but out of anger or hatred. You know, there there are... Um, oh, I had the privilege to uh, listen to the story of someone who uh, was unpacking his crime and looking at where where it happened that he basically turned the other person into an object so that he could treat that person that way and in seeing that process you know there was a moment there where he could harden himself to do that but feeling it now there was clearly a lot of pain for having done that. You know, that, I think sometimes we, we just think of, 
of people who do that kind of thing is just you know, not having any feelings whatsoever. But there's all kinds of conditions that may lead somebody to, in a moment, be, you know, have that sense of separation and do something like that that then they feel the rebound of, that they feel the consequences of. And so, that, you know, so this is part of that understanding, this... this um, the natural, so this is, this is understood as ethics as a natural law, let's say, as distinct from ethics as, let's see, what's the, the framing, um, prescribed ethics. So the, the ethics of the Eightfold Path is this ethics around the, um, the consequences of harming as it unfolds naturally in our hearts and minds. Um, the feelings that come up around killing, there will be, you know, even, even if it's, um, you know, in self-defense, there's going to be some quivering in the heart. There's going to be some kind of pain of having done that. And so there is a rebound there. You know, there is that kind of uh, it has an effect. And so this is what, what the Buddhist ethics is pointing to. The effect of, the natural effect of taking these actions is, is harm externally and harm internally. The prescribed morality, what we could call um, um, morality based on concepts, designations, ideas, this is, this is what we would call perhaps laws, you know, so, you know, sometimes the laws of our culture, there's some overlap for sure between this natural ethics and the laws of our culture. Um, but they're not always completely aligned. And so, um, you know, this is, this is not so much about uh, what does the law say, what does the law say about ethics, but this is more about how does the... Um, uh, you know, how does the heart rebound? And so, for instance, you know, when Obama was president, he issued the order to kill Osama bin Laden. That was, in our cultural sense, not unlawful. In this sense, in terms of the um, rebound effect, my guess is that President Obama had some feelings there. It wasn't simply joy that this person ha- who had been killing so many other beings was now dead. My sh- I'm, I'm quite sure that, 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 that there is some rebound there, having issued that order to kill. And yet, and so again, this kind of points again to that varying morality, that killing somebody who kills so many people this is maybe one of the places where people get into the, the what we might call some gray areas around this precept. It's like, well, isn't that okay? Like, our law says it's okay. You know, is, doesn't that mean it's okay ethically? And the Buddhist teaching is looking at the effect. And so that action has consequences on us internally. It has an effect. And so it is... It is um, not as 
powerful an effect as killing out of hatred and killing somebody who is like Gandhi. That's hugely impactful. The number of people, Gandhi, more people Gandhi could have helped. You, know, you, you look at the kind of ripple effects of, of the consequences. You know, that, so this, uh, the, the teaching on the, um, the precepts is a little more nuanced. But it is looking at this internal experience in terms of the rebound, in terms of the inner consequences. We look at, you know, how is it? And, and you know, if, if you are, if, if, if in a situation where you, you have to um, um, kill somebody or something um, out of self-defense or out of some kind of um, necessity... Um, to kind of try to repress or, or to tell yourself, you know, if you're feeling some kind of a quiver there, you know, some kind of, a, of an agitation of heart around that, to tell yourself it's okay because of these conditions. That's actually ignoring that very natural movement of heart that, that has an effect, that, that, that recognizes depriving another being of life is painful both externally and internally. And so, you know, so this is, is asking us to look at that, to not just tell myself it was okay because of this, these reasons. I certainly hope that President Obama didn't cert- just say to himself it was okay to kill Osama bin Laden if, if he had any kind of feeling of, of quivering in the heart, that he held that feeling. Because that feeling is the very natural, uh, ethical compass that we have inside uh, the, the poly word is hiri, and it's kind of like a, a recognition that something we've, we've done has, has created some, some suffering. Created suffering for the person who, in their, in their dying perhaps, created suffering for um, the family of that person. And so our heart understands that and quivers. And the hiri, the, 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 the a good poly translate a good translation for that might be conscience that conscience that's tickled there's a feeling there and if we are repressing that we are uh, not honoring the very human movement of heart that feels when someone else is suffering it's so closely connected to compassion, that quality of conscience, that when we recognize that we have done something that created suffering, the heart quivers in response to that. It, it acknowledges the suffering, and it's like, yeah, it feels like this to have done that action. And so I think this is a big piece around the exploration around ethics is to open to that feeling to just be curious about that, not to judge ourselves for, for it, but, but actually that, the Buddha called this quality one of the guardians of the world. That because we have this capacity, and I, it becomes because we're empathetic beings. And if we shut down that feeling, we are shutting down our empathetic capacity. And so that's an important recognition for us in exploring this ethical field. Let's see if there's anything more on this. 
Well, I had a whole story I wanted to tell, but maybe maybe I'll tell that when I come back. Um, there's a story in the suttas about a mass murderer at the time of the Buddha. And um, his name was Angulimala. And um, he met the Buddha. And it changed his life. And so it's really a story of redemption. And so it's, it's right in here too. I think it's, it's important to recognize that he killed 999 people. And meeting the Buddha changed his life so dramatically that he became a monastic and completely freed his mind from greed, aversion, and delusion. So that possibility of redemption is deeply embedded into this tradition. So that's, to me, also a very hopeful aspect of these teachings. The And I remember this sometimes, you know. I, I remember this story. It's so inspiring to me to remember this story because sometimes I feel myself seeing, seeing the way my mind has these intentions and these greeds and aversions. And, and it's like, there's like oh, am I worthy? Am I worthy of this freedom? And I remember the story. And it's like, well, if Angulimala was worthy, I'm worthy. So I, I, I will tell that story next time because I actually have a whole talk that I do on that. It's, 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 a, it's a beautiful, like, whole teaching story. And so when I return, that will be where we begin, is with the story of Angulimala. And uh, now, just any comments or questions or reflections about this? Yeah, and would you pass the mic back? And there's a button on the side to turn on. So I found the talk very helpful. Uh, What's challenging to me is thinking about how to apply it. Uh, because the precept seems very absolute. So, for example, it uh, clearly leads you to uh, need to be vegan if you want to follow through with this. Well, actually, you know, that is not so clear. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) You know, in fact, the Buddha was not vegan. The Buddha ate meat. Um, So, you know, so again, there's a lot of these very nuanced understandings. The precept encourages us to refrain from the act of killing or refrain from directly telling someone else to kill. And in terms of his monastics, the Buddha actually said, if you know that somebody is killing an animal to serve you, you should not eat that meat. But the, the, so, so there's like, if you, if you know, if, like if they're killing it for you, then he said, he said, no, don't eat that meat. But he, he, you know, that, so the, the, the injunction is around refraining from actively doing the killing. Now, in our culture, we understand that our act of purchasing meat is a very indirect, you know, pressure towards the killing of, of animals. And so that's something, you know, in terms of the precept itself, and, you know, the precepts are actually, in, in my understanding, actually possible to uh, follow. 
uh, they, they can be challenging to, at times, but you know the the kind of um, the broader approach that many more um, modern Buddhist teachers take around the precepts. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh comes to mind in his very broad interpretation of the precepts. In in some ways, as I read his interpretations of the precepts, it's like, well, these are not possible to keep. How can I not, you know, taking what's not given, using all the planet's resources, you know, in in um, you know as lightly as possible? It's like it it just feels like overwhelming in some ways. And so the, the precepts are, are actually pretty straightforward. Refraining from the act of killing or in, in you know, telling somebody else directly to kill. So the, the, it, is not, it is not a violation of the precept. However, there is the understanding. I mean, as you see, you know, so to me, this is the exploration internally of, yeah, um, you know, eating of, um, you know, eating of meat creates these conditions and how much greed is there how much aversion is there and so it's more it more becomes an exploration around the the movement of greed and aversion but it's not an ethical violation so we you know so the 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 the, um so it's kind of like again in the gradations of things the gradations of the harm that's caused um our action does contribute to that. You know, flying on an airplane contributes to global warming. So, you know, there's, there's so many ways in which we know information about the kind of deeply interconnected nature of our consumption and the planet that um, I would say, yes, I mean, if you're interpreting the precepts in that way, it, it becomes almost impossible to, to live in line with those precepts. But I think, you know, the precepts are much more um, simple in a way. And they're really looking at the bigger kinds of violations. The actively taking something that belongs to somebody else. Depriving somebody else of property. That's, that's embedded in the taking what's not given. Depriving a particular being of life, that's embedded in the precept. The other piece around the precepts is that the language is, um, sikapadang is the, you know, um, um, is the next word, uh, which means something along the lines of training guideline. And so these are stated as, I undertake the training to refrain from taking life. And so to use it as a training, we also understand there may be areas, there may be gray areas in which we do deprive a being of life. I um, had to treat my, um, my house for bed bugs. And I recognized, yes, depriving some beings of life here. And yet there was also the recognition, if I don't treat for bed bugs, there's going to be a multiplication of bed bugs they're going to get into my, the units of my next door neighbors and there's going to be more <laughs> carnage and destruction <laughs> as it spreads. You know? so, so there was a piece of that recognizing, okay, fewer beings will die if I treat this early. That was a piece of it. And, um, and then there was also the recognition of, yeah, there is a rebound. There is a feeling of the the kind of the pain of depriving beings of life. 
And that I didn't repress. So just kind of holding that. And so it's a training rule, and we may find times that there are these gray areas. I mean, killing malarial mosquitoes as a as a culture, as a as a as a um, as a um, society, we've decided to do that, so that there won't be other kinds of suffering. So you know, these are these are some gray areas to to hold and to recognize. Yes, doing that. It's not like, yep, it's okay. I don't have to feel the pain of that, but. What is the pain of that? That's, I think, what these trainings ask us to do, is to look at that. And so you may have more. I stopped you with vegan, but... <laughs> no, I think you, you went in the direction that I was thinking of, which is uh, trying to... like. I think it's helpful to say it's a training method or it's a way of thinking and to examine... Is there a rebound effect? Like, for example, the example your your bedbug example. I was thinking of the mosquitoes create a lot of harm to my wife, who then is yelling at me to go kill the mosquito. So it's easier for me just to kill the mosquito and reduce. That way, we get to sleep, and there isn't a lot of disharmony between us. Yes. So that's one example versus let the mosquito live. That's very clear cut to me. The um, do I feel any quivering or any kind of rebound for eating chicken? I mean. Very clearly, when you're paying money to create demand, that's allowing someone else to that's kill right. yep. on behalf. So I don't think the fact that it's removed from me doesn't mean that I'm not involved in the killing. Right. Does that create a rebound for me? I'm not sure. The way I'm operationalizing this is some sense of different beings have different levels of sentience or consciousness and I'm just drawing an arbitrary line somewhere. Well, and, and, you know, there is that, again, there is that no notion in here different, you know, so that in, in terms of mammals, for instance, you know, in terms of killing animals that, so it's more, more of a consequence to kill a human being than to kill an animal. And in terms of the way the, the, they understood it at the time of the Buddha, it was more ethically unhelpful, unwholesome to kill a large animal than to kill a small animal. So elephants were really bad to kill. <laughs> um, chickens, much less so. <laughs> you know, so so whales would be bad. <laughs> you know, bad to kill. It, but again, less so than a human being. So, you know, again, the, the the there are these gradations, and I think it is helpful to look at the rebound. It's really helpful. And to me, quantity is important too. You know, so, you know, I do eat some fish and chicken. I don't eat a lot of it. Like, I, I, when I have it, it's usually a pretty small portion. So to, to supplement my protein, which I do need uh, for my health. So, you know, I, that, so th- those, wa- those things happen, those way-offs. And, you know, recognize, recognizing, yes, I try to recognize. When, the one piece that I think that's important is to be aware, to not be deluded. So I am eating meat. I am eating what was a living being. To be conscious of that and to be grateful that that being gave its life so that I could be healthy. So that's a, another piece of the exploration, I think. Again, you're not like let off the hook of the rebound, but you know, to, to, to use it, to use that as an exploration. And it's time to stop. So thank you for your attention. And Angulimala when I come back. <laughs> thank you.